And so there is this ideology that I recount in the book that really kind of forms around the tech industry as it picks up some of these neoliberal ideas that, you know, all we need is this kind of technological determinism. We just need to rely on the kind of continual advance of technology and that will solve all of our problems for us while downplaying the politics of those technologies, right? And and how we really need, if we're going to solve these problems, is the proper politics to follow along with these technologies um, if we're going to have the benefits that we expect from them. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. My name is Kirsten Korosek, Transportation Editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I am thrilled uh, to be here today to speak with um, someone we've been wanting to get on the on the show for a while, but um, who has been extremely busy promoting his new book. Um, Paris Marks, if you're not familiar with him, um, he is a well, he, your PhD student at the University of Auckland. Um, but most of us, oh, are you no longer? Is that? No. <laughs> I actually had to withdraw a couple months ago. <laughs> Well, okay, we can we can talk about that because I think the, the the reason most of us know him is through the Tech Won't Save Us podcast, um, which has just been a really, I mean, it's come out of nowhere. I think, how long have you been doing it now? A little over a year? Uh, just a, a little over two years. I started like right after the pandemic kind of hit. Yeah. <laughs> And and it's it's absolutely exploded, and um, I think it's it's actually fascinating that you're 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 no longer in school because you know to me you know I did some homeschooling and in like middle school and stuff. I'm a big believer in self education, and for me, doing this show has been the best education I could have possibly gotten in sort of the areas I'm interested in. I'm wondering, you you have to feel like doing your show is the same way. I see the people you have on, I, I hear the conversations you have. I mean, what an amazing way to learn about about you know all kinds of, of technological issues going on. No, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. Like, you know, obviously during the pandemic, I was kind of stuck in Newfoundland. If people aren't, people don't know where that is. It's an island off the East coast of Canada. So, you know, there's not a big kind of tech community here, especially into like the kind of critical tech issues that I talk about on the, on the show. Um, and certainly that I, you know, work on in my research and, and things like that. Um, and so it was like a fantastic way to kind of not only keep these connections, but make these connections with like way more people, especially during a time when I was like not really mobile, not really going anywhere, you know? Um, and so it was fantastic. And then, you know, getting to speak to those people, getting their insights on so many different issues has just been like fantastic. And then also, you know, doing the reading and the research to prepare for those interviews has informed me on like so many topics. So yeah, like it's been totally awesome. <laughs> So, so your book is Road to Nowhere, Silicon Valley and the Future of Mobility. Um, I've got my copy right here. I've really been enjoying oh, it. Um, sorry. <laughs> did the you... subtitle has changed from the it copy that you have. <laughs> Please tell everyone the, 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 the final I'm version. So I've got a, no, no, this is, I've got a, I've got a, a, a pre-release uh, a galley here. So, so go ahead and tell folks the, re the real title. Yeah, it, it's road to nowhere. What Silicon Valley gets wrong about the future of transportation? We we changed it up and we we um, changed the cover from the copy that you have. Um, I, I should have checked on that. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, it's no problem. Um, I, my my book went through a number of, of subtitle changes. Sorry, Kirsten. Go ahead. Yeah, so I want to start the very not the very beginning, but the the book process, just because I got to suffer through sort of sideline suffer through what Ed went through, just because he was like sometimes extra grumpy and. Then like happy depending on where it was in the process so why did you settle on like the title and the subtitle that you did like and and how does that relate to what people should expect when they're you know kind of reading it what did you want to 
you know, put across or communicate? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And I would say, honestly, I feel like the the title of the book was a bit outside of my, not my control, but like I had, I wasn't really sure what to call it. Like I had some ideas in the beginning and like the publisher wasn't really loving them. Um, and then we decided on Road to Nowhere and I was like, yeah, I like that. Like that really fits. And then the question was always like, you know, what is the subtitle going to be? Because that really needs to give you a good idea of what's going on in the book in a way that just Road to Nowhere doesn't so much, right? Okay, maybe it's a transport book, but like, you know, beyond that, what's it really about? Um, and so the the original one, you know, on the future of, of mobility just felt a bit too vague. It, it felt like it didn't really give a good idea of the perspective of the book. Um, and so then we settled on um, what Silicon Valley gets wrong about the future of transportation that very clearly says like, you know, it's not just about Silicon Valley and their future of transportation, but also, you know, why I think that they've really messed up in promoting a particular future of transportation to us um, and how buying into that has had consequences that, you know, we need to deal with now after a decade, a decade and a half of this kind of vision of what mobility should be and how we should just kind of kind of stand back and let technology solve our transportation problems and how they've really not been able to fulfill that promise that they made to us. It's definitely a spicier subtitle. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> so which which I think is smart because um you know Ed and I and and Alex um get tons of, you know, inbound of books that are coming out and they're often as you um mentioned sort of about the Jetson futuristic promises um or sometimes historical like which is very interesting. Um and those can be really interesting and exciting but they do tend to um miss like the potential consequences or outcomes. Um, so is that, I mean, to me, that seems like that's what you were going for, but maybe there was something else here that I'm missing. No, like that's completely right. You know, the, the book is really inspired by work that I've been doing for years, writing about technology and transportation for, for various outlets. And then I, I went back to school in 2018 to do a master's because, you know, I, I wasn't making a full-time income off of writing. I was just doing it freelance and I wanted to spend more time looking into these issues. And so that was a way to get funding to actually be able to do some more of that research. And so, you know, I, I did a master's in geography and my thesis looked at um, what the tech industry was proposing for transportation, what the implications of those promises had been or, or could be um, if they were actually fulfilled. Um, and, and, you know, what what potential solutions to these real problems that we do face in the transportation system could look like if these tech promises aren't solving the problems that they've been claiming to. And so then when I, when I finished that up in um, around, I guess it was around May-ish of, of 2020, I didn't officially graduate until the fall just because of how the university system works. Um, but when that was done, you know, some people said to me, like, you should consider turning this into a book because, of course, while there had been books that, you know, looked at particular companies or particular approaches like Ed's book, which I recommend all the time because I love, um, or like Mike Isaac's book, Super Pumped, or, you know, a whole load that look at like really specific companies or, or implementations of technology in the transport system. Um, you know, there didn't seem to be a book that took like this broader view that brought in some of the kind of historical pieces of, you know, many of these different types of modes. And that made like a, a broader argument about the tech industry's um, intervention into transportation and into the transportation system and why we should be critically assessing um, what the impact of that 
you know, intervention has been um, and whether we need to do something else if we're going to solve these these really pressing problems with transportation. Yeah. So, so you know, a, a lot of times in in sort of the kind of Silicon Valley discourse and whatnot, there's sort of this, you know, uh, Detroit versus Silicon Valley kind of thing. But it, it seems like in your book, and and I've, you know, it's been a little bit of a hobby horse of mine. I, I, I kind of feel like it's not a great way to understand what's going on. And, and I tend to rant about that a bit. But I, 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 so one of the things I noticed in your book is that, you know, uh, it seems almost in a way as you, as you're positioning, it kind of starts with cars, right? And, and, and it almost positions Silicon Valley more as like the inheritor of Detroit's mantle in a, in, in a way, um, which I think is, is really interesting. How do you see that, that relationship on a fundamental level between sort of this, you know, car based, especially in the US, you know, mode of mobility that, that's been so dominant for century, right? And, and, and sort of now what we're grappling with this, with this sort of promise that, that tech is going to sort of, you know, solve some of the problems that that's created. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question, and you know, certainly I, I've thought about it quite a bit. Um, you know, for me, when I think about the tech industry's intervention into transportation in particular, right? Not not just talking broadly here, but it really is building on the legacy of what Detroit and the traditional auto industry has built, right? Like, you know, I think often that these tech companies have been constantly telling us that they are disrupting the transportation system for a decade or decade and a half, right? And then I think, okay, but what have they really changed about the way they get around? Like, I can get a taxi on my phone by pressing a button, but is that really like a revolution for how we move? And then if you think back to, you know, the early part of the 20th century, when the automobile is really rolling out in North America, like that's a real disruption that we're talking about in that moment, right? That's really changing how people are getting around the norms of how we understand the street and cities and and mobility. Um, It's really pushing, you know, the other modes of transportation that are kind of coexisting on streets at the time, pushing them, them off the streets altogether and saying that these are spaces for cars now. And, you know, you have government policy and everything supporting this notion that, you know, what the future looks like is everyone is driving a car, everyone's living out in the suburbs, like we're completely re orienting the way that communities are built, the way that we get around. And so then if we fast forward a while, you know, this is a very kind of abridged version of of that history. And certainly I think it's important to say that that doesn't just change because, you know, the car is invented and there's this new technology. So everything starts to shift, but rather because there is a really powerful industry and set of industries and kind of corporate lobby behind that vision for how transportation systems should work. Um, you know, there, there are visions promoted by Shell and promoted by General Motors and, and all these other companies. And then the government buys into it for its own set of reasons, both around promoting economic growth because of the power of this industry. They also see the threat of um, the power of labor when you have, you know, transportation controlled by, you know, workers on on the train systems and the streetcar systems and things like that. And there's also kind of fears around um, centralization when you have the threat of nuclear attacks and wanting to kind of decentralize the cities. And so there are a ton of different things at play in the moment, right? And, And that contributes to the reason why we have the communities and transportation system that we have today. So if we fast forward to what the tech industry is proposing, you know, they're looking at this system where everyone or not everyone, but virtually everyone, you know, is dependent on cars, has to drive to get to work and to where they're going. There's this really kind of sprawled um, suburban landscape that many people are, are stuck in. Um, and so their responses are very much oriented around the automobile for that reason and also because the people developing these solutions are kind of personally invested in the automobile as well, right? They want to drive. They don't want to be on transit um, or trains or, or anything like that. Um, 
But then on top of that, when we look at the actual changes or what these technologies do to that transportation system, it's not to try to fundamentally reimagine it, right? It's not to say that we should get around in a different way. It's to say we should still be dependent on automobiles. Our community should still be largely designed in this way, but we're going to insert our technologies within the automobile, within this relationship that you have to become another corporate interest that is extracting value from that system, right? Um, you know, it's very successful. It's quite profitable for for various interests. So now we want to get our cut as well. And so that's really where I see their contribution and how they're building on what Detroit has done in the past rather than really kind of upending um, this this kind of system that exists. There is so much to unpack there. So I'm going to <laughs> give it a go. Um, so what I'm hearing from you is, is less of a Silicon Valley versus Detroit um, sort of analogy. Um, and more as Silicon Valley adopting approaches that Detroit developed um, and then just codifying and making it different slightly. So with that in mind, you went when you first were talking, you were talking about how there was the real disruption or reorientation of how we really moved happened, you know, more than 100 years ago. In your view, will we have another reorientation and will it be blowback to technology or will it be something or will it be actually some sort of technology that we can't predict? Like, are we even capable of a complete reorientation, either um, forced or, you know, something that we've signed up for? Um, because to me, the, the problematic thing is if, if really this next stage isn't disruption at all, but merely just extracting, like you said, from not really providing some potential benefits, but also leading to some others and it's sort of one the same, then we're just going to be on this continual cycle. Like that'll never change. Um, not all disruption is good, but I'm just wondering based on everything you see in front of you, is a disruption coming? Is it, a, is there a reorientation and what will cause it? Yeah, it, it's such, it's such a good question, right? And it's such an important question. When I look back at the history of transportation, when I look back to the rollout of the automobile, for me, what I see is why does the the system fundamentally change, right? Why do our cities get reorganized, our transportation system get reorganized? We build a whole load of new infrastructure. We change the way that communities are planned. That's not inherently because the automobile arrives or because the private sector decides that's the way it wants to do it, right? It's because the state gets very heavily involved. It makes major investments in order to promote that reorientation of society. It changes laws, it changes regulations, it changes the tax code in order to incentivize a shift toward this different way of living, toward this different means of getting around, right? It's really the intervention of the state and the states agreeing with this vision being put forward by oil companies and auto companies that leads to this fundamental change, not simply because the auto companies want it to happen. And so then for me, the reason that I don't see a fundamental change in the way that we get around happening right now is because the state is not heavily involved in making some sort of shift happen or doesn't have the, de the desire to see that happen. And so if we are thinking, you know, is there going to be some significant change away from a system that is very reliant on automobiles, regardless of which technologies are in those automobiles, the question for me is, you know, is the state backing a vision or is the state being pushed to back a vision that would accomplish that? Um, 
And really what I see is, is no, right? There are some investments being made, certainly in the rail system to kind of improve the Amtrak system a bit. Um, you know, cities around the United States, around Canada are making investments in the public transit system, but not nearly to the degree that you would need to you know, have some kind of fundamental reorientation. And the intervention of the tech companies is not really doing anything to push that along, right? You know, what you see from any of the tech companies is a desire to maintain the automotive system and just to, as I said, insert themselves within it rather than, say, get people out of automobiles and get them onto transit or, or onto bikes or things like that largely, right? Um, and so until... And, you know, really what we see right now is a big push from the state to get people into electric vehicles, to get people driving electric cars. And these are not like a fundamental reimagining of what the car is, but rather, you know, an electric SUV or an electric truck uh, in, in many cases. Um, and so, you know, there's not this kind of desire or there's not this kind of push or there's not the energy to make the investments and, and you know, change the systems that would be necessary to see that reorientation take place. And so as much as I think it's necessary to solve the real problems that do exist in the transport system, you know, I, I don't see the energy behind actually making it happen, which is disappointing. Um, real quick follow-up, where do you slot EV tolls in this, what now is being called urban air mobility? So, you know, real short flights, like, is this again just like, I know, let's just put it in the sky? Or is there, is there, if done properly, a chance to actually change the way and reorient the way people move? And could it be even a positive thing? Or is it all just a disaster waiting to happen? <laughs> I, I'm very skeptical, I would say. Um, I think that, you know, they'll certainly arrive, they'll certainly have a place within the transportation system. But I think that the place they will hold is largely one that is held by the helicopter or something like that right now, right? You'll have wealthier people who might take these for, for trips to the airport or trips to wherever. You might have tourists going on, you know, kind of sightseeing trips with them and those sorts of usual implementations that we already have for the helicopter. But I don't see them becoming like a mass transportation solution, right? Um, in the way that really we've been sold by Uber and, and many of these other companies that are that are working on them. And certainly that's beneficial for them to, to have us believe that. Um, but I think that if we really did start to see any kind of mass rollout of those, you know, kind of, they call them flying cars or EVs, whatever, whatever they, they kind of spin them as, you know, I think that we'd quickly find that there are a lot of downsides to using that as a mass form of transportation. Um, and that kind of just lifting a ton of people into the sky over cities and having them transported that way, um, I think people would get really pissed off with it really quickly. And yeah, I, I think there'd be opposition that, I don't know, we're, we're being told not to expect or something like that at the moment. Um, so I, I really, I, I think your point is is a really good one about, you know, cars didn't just happen. I, I think this is something that is very easy for us, especially after a, a century of dominant, like to just think, Cars just happen. They're just so superior. They're so natural. Like anything that's been around long enough, you start to think of it as being the like sort of natural way of things. Um, but in reality, as you as you point out, I mean, you know, it was the auto industry and like AAA was like the big um, advocate for a gas tax, right? Because they needed to fund, they, they want to raise a gas on tax, which, which again, like in this day and age, it's hard to imagine the auto industry and its allies supporting a gas tax, right? That raises the cost of using their products. But, but in order to develop that market further, they needed more roads, right? Like if you don't have enough roads, you're going to 
not be able to sell people enough cars. And so there absolutely was in these in these early days, you know, government and 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 the private sector sort of working hand in hand. To me, part of what you're writing about here seems almost as if, right? And and and, and you know, obviously ideology has become <laughs> like sort of a, a maybe a less like cut and dried thing than it has been at, at different periods in the past. But it seems like some of what what the conflict here to me seems to be that like we have on the one hand like a lot of skepticism that um, we can do much collectively, right? Like there's a lot of skepticism around uh, the government's ability to like successfully contribute to better mobility outcomes in the future, and and on the other hand, um, uh, you know this like limitless faith that technology is going to come up with solutions, you know, even, even when, you know, you have things like Uber and, and we can talk more about sort of how like Uber has absolutely not sort of lived up to some of the promises that they, they made in, in terms of their impact. But is that like fundamentally, cause I, I, you know, you start talking about, about socialism and capitalism, all these other things, and there's all kinds of, of baggage around to me, like that kind of seems almost like, and, and I'm not sure what the right words to use for this are, but like, but that's almost seems like the ideological conflict is, is just like that belief where, where you, how you believe things can get done, and that like we have so much faith in 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 individuals and tech companies and startups to develop these like solutions to our problems, and we have so little confidence in in sort of government driven like collective solutions. Is that is that kind of when when you boil it down, or am I or am I a little off in in in, in how I'm reading through the lines here? No, I think you're absolutely spot on. Um, like you know, if you if you think back to the period when the automobile is rolling out, there's still a real belief that the state has a role to play in building infrastructure, in you know creating the foundations that are necessary for prosperity to exist, right? For for even companies to to take off, like you know the 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 governments in the United States, like in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s, like they're not socialist governments, right? Like they're very much about promoting the capitalist system. And even when you have the build out of the interstate highway system, um, like that, that project is kind of led by people who have experience in the New Deal era, right? And building out all of like the public works of the New Deal. Um, and so they are kind of taking that experience that they have from that moment and applying it to the build out of this nationwide highway system. Um, but then, you know, I would argue that there's a real fundamental shift that starts to happen in the 1980s, you know, which we would call the neoliberal period, right? This where these ideas come into play that the government should really have a much like a much lesser role in the economy, in society, that it shouldn't be doing so much, that it should be leaving more to the private sector. Um, and I think that that has really hamstrung us when we think about how we solve some of these really fundamental problems, right? Like, even if you're a capitalist and and I'm not like if, you know I'll be I'll be clear about it um but even if you are like I think that there has to be a realization that the state has an important role to play especially when you see how you know things have gone over the past number of years right the tra the trajectory that things have been on um it it's really negative you see the growth of inequality we see that we can't really solve these fundamental issues because the idea is constantly that we need to rely on the private sector we need to rely on the tech companies for example to deliver these solutions to these real collective problems and they are continually not able to do so and you know that's not a knock against them necessarily but 
I, I think it's just because really we need the state to step in to solve some of these major problems. And so there is this ideology that I recount in the book that really kind of forms around the tech industry as it picks up some of these neoliberal ideas that, you know, all we need is this kind of technological determinism. We just need to rely on the kind of continual advance of technology and that will solve all of our problems for us while downplaying the politics of those technologies, right? And and how we really need, if we're going to solve these problems, is the proper politics to follow along with these technologies um, if we're going to have the benefits that we expect from them. And, you know, one of the problems that we have now is that, um, you know, we have these tech companies who sell us this notion that all we need is for technologies to advance, for the internet to roll out even further, you know, for for whatever, for them to build their digital technologies into more aspects of society. And that will make life better. That will solve many of the problems that we face, even as, you know, again and again, we see that that is not how it works in practice. Um, and in many cases, when those technologies roll out, because there isn't, you know, the guardrails on them, as we saw over the past 10 years or so, that they can actually have really negative consequences, even when they tell us that they're going to have really positive outcomes. So like, even if you set aside the the, the ideological dimension of this as well, um, you know, just as uh, judging some of the the biggest names in sort of mobility technology over the past ten years has been kind of a, a a trend. They're not really succeeding by capitalist standards, right? They're not really succeeding by their own standards, and and so like Uber, right? Probably one of the biggest names, like not really a particularly viable business, like certainly not you know, to the extent that, that people thought they kind of disrupted taxis. Um, they, they've fueled more auto sales than they've stopped, right. They've fueled more congestion than they've reduced. Right. So like kind of, again, like on, on multiple dimensions, we see some failure there. Go back even earlier, like Zipcar was one of the biggest ones. It's basically a rental car company now, right. It's, it's part of, I don't know, Avis or something. Um, and, uh, you look at the scooter companies as well. There was just this huge explosion, you know, all millions of dollars dumping scooters all over the place. It's just retracted and retracted. So like, there's also so just leaving the ideological piece of this aside. I mean, these companies, Silicon Valley's track record when it comes to mobility, as opposed to you know all the everything online and software and and whatever else, which there's been obviously successes and failures, but 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 in the mobility space alone, like they're not even succeeding by their own terms. What does that what does that tell you? Yeah, well, you know, I think it, I think it backs up the argument, right? Um, that we can't just rely on the technologies to solve the problems, problems that are the result, it should be noted, of policy decisions that were made over the course of many decades, right? You know, we don't have problems in our transportation system simply because we don't have the adequate technologies to to, to fix them, to deal with them, but rather because we took policy solutions that created these problems in the first place and then decided not to address them because it was profitable and beneficial for particular interests for this to continue regardless of the downsides of it, right? And so, you know, when you talk about companies like Uber or the scooter companies or what have you, you know, their real promise was not, sure, disruption was there, um, but it was that by implementing our technological solutions, our technological approach, we are going to solve all of these really serious problems that do indeed exist in the transportation system, right? Uber was going to solve congestion. It was going to ensure that a lot of people who don't have good access to the trans to transportation right now were going to be able to get it. It was going to be complementary toward public transit and all of these other really 
beneficial things. But then, you know, when independent researchers were actually able to get in there and see the impact of Uber, what we see is that that was not the benefit that they had, right? In, in many cases, as you were saying, they had the opposite effect. They made traffic worse. Um, they took people away from transit. They increased the emissions per trip. And on and on, you know, we, we can talk about workers' rights as well, how they decimated that in the taxi industry. And that's not to say that, you know, the taxi industry was absolutely perfect before that. Sure, there were things that needed to be fixed, but was blowing up the regulatory framework um, and taking this, uh, this approach that Uber, you know, promoted, was that really the way to solve the problem? No, it wasn't, right? We needed the government to step up and do that, but they weren't willing to do it for a whole load of reasons um, linked to the fact that I think governments have lost a lot of the capacity that they used to have to deal with these problems and the desire to do so. And I think that the tech industry often provides them with an out where they can say, look, we can step back. We don't need to do this because the private sector is going to solve it. Just look at these beautiful tech companies and, and all that they've been doing. Right. Um, a couple of things. Um, one, what I think I'm curious your opinion on that, even though and you just laid out, you know, Ed laid out a number of reasons how tech has like not really solved a problem. It's actually created a new problem or maybe shifted the problem. But what I always find fascinating and granted, it could be very geographically specific. So I'm not going to cast like this broad brush is that in some cases, these companies that are like unprofitable, like definitely unprofitable, um, have these like huge adoption rates initially. Like when I think of Uber, like they're still in Lyft, they're like still struggling. Um, but it did disrupt or change, I guess, the um, taxi industry. It did actually was disruptive to um, uh, traffic congestion. And it did change and, and contributed to an uptick in auto sales. Uh, like look at how popular the Toyota Prius is, for example. So then I think about like, what is fueling this adoption though? Is it to me, maybe this is a little Pollyannish, but it's like people are hungry for like some answer. And so they like, and maybe that answer, they won't stick with Uber and Lyft very long, or maybe they won't stick to the scooter very long or the e-bike, but they, there seems to be this genuine hunger for it. And so is it just a small sliver of people who are just like very loud and excitable about it and they're early adopters, or is it more of an in indication that people are really seeking out some sort of answer to their current issue, their current transportation or mobility issue. In your view, what which one is it, or is it both? I, I think it's a bit of. Uh, well, I think it's a bit of both, right? Like, I think that you definitely have those loud people who are really championing some of these ideas who get really kind of personally invested in the companies and the products. You know, certainly Ed can tell us a lot about how that works with Tesla. Um, but then, you know, on the other hand, as I was saying, like, these are real problems that these companies are identifying in the transportation system. And so I think it's no surprise that then people are drawn to them when they see the the possibility of solving some of these issues that they face in, in how they get around, right? That will increase their, their access to mobility. Um, but does that mean that it's really solving the fundamental problem that it's really addressing these, these problems in a way that really serves like, you know, most of the people who really need that, that problem to be solved. And I would argue in many cases it doesn't, right? Like the studies that I've seen about Uber, for example, suggest that 
the the people who tend to use the most are people earning um, above average incomes, above seventy ish thousand dollars in U.S. cities, above a hundred thousand dollars in in Toronto. Um, you know, college educated, above average income, young people in cities. Um, you know, it's not generally the people who are most deprived of access to transportation um, or to good transportation who are tending to be the people who get the most benefit from these systems, even though some of them will be able to use them um, at least occasionally in order to fill gaps in their transportation needs. Um, and, you know, as they should, right? Um, if that option is available to them to, to be able to take advantage of it. But if we were thinking about what really solves the problem, right, is Uber, you know, the most ideal form to, to see that happen through? Or, you know, are, are, there, are there better solutions that could be taken, that could be done um, in order to solve the problem? And, and I'd argue in most cases, that's that would be the case, right? And so, yeah, I, I think it's a bit of both. You know, you have your loud people, um, but then naturally there are people who are going to to gravitate toward it if it can fill a gap that exists for them. And I would say that I think, especially with Uber, part of the reason that worked early on is because the service was so heavily subsidized because it lost so much money. Um, and now as we see those prices go up, as we see, you know, the, the kind of availability of service, the wait times increase a bit as well, um, you know, I guess the, the kind of, profitable or like not losing as much reality of this company is that really solving that problem for even as many people as it did early on i think probably not can i um just one more i want to offer like a or ask a counter argument question which is you were originally talking about um not just that um presenting this idea that technology companies aren't providing an option but really like then the solution might be to turning towards government and having government more involved and there is you know, a strong argument for that, um, in, especially when it's a social need. So um, do you want a private enterprise that is driven, you know, by profits as they should? Like, that's generally like the way it works. Um, um, hopefully in a, you know, maybe a B Corp setup, but but, but sure. Um, as opposed to a government that is uh, maybe not driven by profits, hopefully maybe driven by some efficiencies and what works best, but generally looking to serve more people even if it isn't the most profitable outcome so there's there's a reason to do that but in your view or i guess in my view i've also seen government certainly lots of examples of government failures or government inefficiencies or or just the the slowness of it the bureaucracy of it that really to me is what makes technology oftentimes more appealing and I understand that in this very distracted society that we're like looking for the quick option. I'm not talking about looking for the quick op option. I'm more talking about like something that will actually happen in my lifetime. And oftentimes these government investments are like infrastructure wise, 20, 30 years out. And it's a payoff for the future generation, but not for me today. So what is an example that you can give me of where government has been involved and has produced is a good example of you know, all the things that I enlisted were negatives, like uh, not so much bureaucracy, some efficiency, and actually getting something out in the world that can be used. And maybe it's not in the transportation world. Maybe it's another example. But I think that that's, at least for me, sometimes a struggle, which is like, it totally makes sense. But then in reality, I mean, even at the very basic city level, as an old timey city council reporter, I would see the waste amount of waste of money and just and like 
the incredible decision making that would happen over a tiny thing that would really like an intersection was incredible to me. Like, at, at a, and I was like, just let's use our logic hats, you know, like put them on and make a decision. So have you seen examples that are like positive? Yes, this is an example or a model of how it could be done. Yeah, I think it's a really important question and a really important point, right? Because, you know, in my argument that we do need the state to step up and take these actions to, you know, address these serious problems, it's not also to say that there aren't problems with the state, especially as it's currently constructed, right? As it currently works, Um, you know, I completely recognize and I agree with you that there are a bunch of inefficiencies, that there are a bunch of bureaucratic problems that we've seen, you know, especially when we look at kind of state construction of infrastructure, like, um, you know, subway projects and and other forms of transportation infrastructure, you know, that's become a real issue um, in terms of the cost of building those projects, the time that it takes to build, you know, certainly all we need to do is look at um, the California high-speed rail project and how that's been bungled for for a number of reasons, um, you know, over-reliance on, on consultants and, and contractors and things like that is one issue there, but there are many others. And so I completely agree with you, but I would say that there are places where they can step in and make an immediate um, benefit even if you know there are kind of larger problems that need to be sorted out if they are going to return to this role that I think that they should play in order to solve these really serious problems that we face in the transportation system but I would say you know even more broadly when we look at um, what is going to need to happen to respond to climate change to address other really serious kind of um, social and economic issues that that we face in society today. Um, but I think that we can look at various cities like uh, even, even Los Angeles, really, where they've made improvements to the public transit system in recent years um, that have been really beneficial to like a lot of people, both building out the, the subway network, the metro system there, um, but also just improving the bus routes, adding express um, bus routes that have been, you know, really helpful for a lot of people to get around in that city, um, a, a city that is, you know, kind of the city of the car, right? But then I think you can even look more broadly than that. You know, if if we can cast our eye outside of the United States as well, you know, in Montreal, there's been a lot of success in building out bike lanes and expanding cycling infrastructure. Um, certainly we've seen in, in Paris, um, there's been a real kind of shift towards cycling during the pandemic because of action that was taken by the local government. And that action didn't come out of nowhere. You know, the local government there has been working over two decades to slowly reduce the space given to the car, the dominance of the car within the city, and to shift people over to different modes of transportation. Um, So just to say everything doesn't happen overnight, but when you make these commitments, you know, um, and, and start to work toward these goals, you know, they build on one another and and you get these benefits over time. Um, and so, you know, that's just to say that I think that there are many things cities can do. I think that one really interesting kind of example for me was during the pandemic, especially, well, you know, we're still in the pandemic, but during like the early stages, you know, during the early lockdowns, um, when people needed to be able to get outside, but still be able to socially distance from one another, because we were still learning about how this spread really happened, you know, how this worked. Um, you know, a lot of cities shut down um, roads to cars and and opened them up to pedestrians and, and other forms of life, whether it was restaurant seating and things like that. And I think that, especially in North America, um, 
that really showed people that things that like their cities can work in a really different way, right? That we can have different forms of interaction, that all of that space doesn't need to be given over to the car. Um, and then I think it's really interesting that after that period of the pandemic, there was a lot of pressure to very quickly, you know, close those streets once again and reopen them to the cars. But in some cities, there has been a degree of of that sticking around. Um, here where I am in, in St. John's, Newfoundland, the, the kind of main street downtown now shuts down every summer for um, a number of months. And it's just for, for pedestrians. And, you know, certainly I'd love to see that happen year round, but, you know, it, it's moving in the right direction, even if it's slowly. So sorry if that's a long answer to your question. But yeah, I think that there are examples, but that's not to say that everything is perfect and that we don't need to address other issues with the way that government approaches these problems and, and these infrastructures. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that's a, it's an interesting example of like a kind of a black swan event, right? The pandemic sort of just showing for the first time in a while, like, oh, we can go in this different direction and it's kind of done on a temporary basis. So people don't freak out about it. And yeah, here in Portland, Oregon, where I live, um, you know, most of those, uh, those roads that, that were shut have remained closed. It really hasn't meaningfully, as far as I can tell, impacted, you know, car traffic. Um, but it's made the city much easier to get around without, without a car. And, um, and so I think, um, you know, one of the, one of the ways for, for progress to happen, it, it says a lot, I think about the, what we're up against that you kind of just need to show people what's possible. Right. Um, the other question I want to ask is sort of in a similar vein, I know we're, we're almost out of time, but I want to have to ask you about dialectics because <laughs> you're coming at this from a leftist perspective. And, and so I, I got to ask about dialectics because I think there's, there's another interesting possibility here. And, and, you know, I was talking before about sort of this, this ideological divide between sort of the idea that tech startups or founders or whatever have like people put so much faith in them to solve big problems and, and so little faith in, 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 in collective solutions to problems, which again, is so weird that you think anything doing big things, you'd think it'd be something we'd have to do together. Um, but we've kind of reversed that logic. And, and of course, Elon Musk is the, is the sort of, you know, patron saint of this view, right? Like he's the guy who, who says, you know, he can do everything. He's the guy that people believe can do everything. We've got this really interesting situation with full self-driving where it's like the best known thing and, and, you know, best known brand in, 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 in self-driving technology. And yet it's like, a scam. But what's even more interesting than the fact that it's a scam to me is that if he could deliver on this, that it would be even worse. And 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 to me, this is where I see the potential for a dialectic, right? And and again, like you kind of maybe it's more of a thought experiment than anything else because you have to presume that we can get this technology to the point where 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 cars can drive themselves. But if we had that, right? If we just took our world, you, you could wave a magic wand and made every car that's on the road can drive itself now. I mean, we kind of know that when you insulate people from the the attention cost of driving, those cars are going to be out there, you know, with zero with zero uh, occupants, you know, with one occupant. People will have them drive around the block instead of parking. There's just it, it would essentially destroy automobility, right? If you if we had that dream, and so I think it's really fascinating when the the logic of something starts to eat itself, right? And and I think for me, it's like if cars could really drive themselves, it, it's both the the like the utopia that everyone thinks that we're moving towards if, you know, based on car culture, but it's also where car culture ends because the freedom and everything that you want out of a car stops working when the roads are just jammed or become parking lots, essentially. Do you think, do you see, by the way, um, yeah, sorry, I was just going to add, I was going to add one more little flavor to your question. Not only that is I completely agree with you, but also then regulatory action will have to happen. And then it's like, 
even more pushback because like, look at the regulators, they're like coming down on us. And it's like, yes, but you created this problem. Like, so it becomes this like, you can see these extreme shifts happening as a result of basically what you just laid out. So sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to add that like other little fun tidbit. Yeah. So that's one example where I see, you know, it, it kind of all coming into one place, but I guess broadly, do you, do you think that sort of the system that we're in now that, that, that its own values will sort of eat itself generally, and that will sort of help birth, um, sort of a move towards a, a different chapter? You would hope so. Um, but I remain skeptical, right? Um, you know, we're in this moment where I think that a lot of people kind of fundamentally recognize that there's a flaw with the way that we get around, right? With how the transportation system works. I think that people are fed up with wasting with wasting so much time stuck in traffic. I think that, you know, as we can see, road deaths continue to escalate every year. Um, I think it's close to, it's over 42,000 in the United States every year right now, which is a significant increase on what it was just a few years ago. Um and and that really hasn't forced um, a significant change by really the state, but even like by the tech companies to really promote propose something that's really going to move us away from it. Right? It's the technologies are going to solve the problem, um, but I feel like the problem is kind of inherently the automobile, not you know, all these other things that are that are associated with it, but we can't make that connection. You know, the one place where we are starting to act on some of these problems is the contribution to climate change um, of automobility, of the automotive system. Um, but the focus on large SUVs and trucks um, that have batteries in them now as the means that we address that problem, I don't think really gets to the root of it, right? And I don't think it will have... Um, the scale of benefit that we kind of assume just because we're going to electrify everything. And so I think that we are in a, a difficult position right now, right? I think that more and more people are fed up with the system that we're in, but we don't have a real solution on offer that many people kind of realize is there or really think is achievable, um, that would really start to address these problems, right? Because as you were saying earlier, Ed, um, you know, this system that we're in right now is is really normalized, right? It, it's 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 been around for decades. It's how we all get around. It's what we're used to. And so the idea of fundamentally changing that can be difficult for people, especially when there's not like a clear example of what that would look like or how it would work or how it would improve someone's life. And I think that that's a real challenge that we need to do to show someone that. And and like, I guess, finally, I would say that I think that we are at a real kind of um, fork in the road moment, right? In part because of climate change um, and the need to address that, to do something to deal with it. And the question is really, do we continue down this road where we are still heavily dependent on automobiles and still hoping to find like the holy grail technology that's going to solve the various problems that exist as a result of kind of the mass use and, and, and mass scale of the automotive system? Or do we recognize that the automobile presents like a fundamental flaw when this many people are using it um, and that we really need to to address climate change, but to address all these other problems that are the result of the automotive system, that we really need to start moving away from the dominance, at least, of that form of transportation. I don't think we're going to get rid of cars altogether or anything like that, but to ensure that not so many people need to be dependent on them, need to drive them all the time, and which direction we go will really determine a lot of things with 
you know, the way that our transportation system is set up, the way that our society operates. Um, and right now, I think that we're very much headed down the road where the automobile sticks around, all of these problems largely stick around, and we keep, you know, searching out for solutions that don't address the root of the problem, um, and then ultimately don't solve those problems. You know, I think you reminded me of what the great disruptor will probably be, which is um, climate change. And so that's not anything that anyone's working on. I mean, they're, they are, but like, I mean, I'm saying the event of climate change as it happens will be more disruptive to our economy and the way we live and move probably than any startup or the next Google or whatever Facebook could ever do. So I think that it will upend a lot of cities and how people live and work and how we grow food and all of those things relate back to how we move around the world and how we move goods. And that is going to, you know, be potentially what, what will end up like really blowing this whole thing up altogether. Um, so that's really fascinating. Like it reminded me like, Oh, that's what, that's what it could be. <laughs> um, not some company, but this other reality that's, you know, kind of we're already encountering. So I wanted to ask about, about, sort of continuing on this theme of, of how how things could potentially play out and, and move in, into a better direction. You know, how how much of this is going to have to be at sort of a local city level? Um, and I think cities are, are it, it, one of the things that gives me a little bit of confidence is that sort of cities are kind of becoming a little bit more of like laboratories, right? And, and experimenting. And not all, you know, it's not all good. It's not all bad. But like, like there's more sort of diversity and, and different localities trying different things. And ultimately, right, mobility is a, is a local problem, right? Every location has its own unique sort of um, attributes. So, but I'm, I'm but, but then at the same time, too, things like the auto industry operate at the national and, and global level, right? And, and so you have these sort of, you know, layered sort of opportunities and challenges. And I'm just kind of curious how you think about, you know, is, is this, is this going to be a matter of focusing on city levels and sort of showing that there is a better path forward at that level is, is, does it make more sense to kind of attack some of these issues at a, at a national, you know, level? How how do you think about that? It's a really interesting question because, you know, ultimately like it does happen on multiple scales, right? Like when we look back at the, the early rollout of the automobile, there were different, different things happening on different levels of government. And, you know, when decisions shifted from different levels of government, that meant very different outcomes, right? When highways and the planning of highways shifted from the local level up to the state and the federal level because there was a recession and local governments no longer had the money to build highways, that meant that they were planned in a very different way and for very different kind of interests and, and outcomes, right? Um, and so I, I think that, that, that that's always there. And I think that there are solutions that can come from every level of government. And, you know, hopefully that would happen, right? Like if we think of the federal level, certainly there's a role to play in building out national infrastructure, infrastructure that links cities together, um, investments in the rail network. But then they can also have a really important role in shaping how funding is allocated for transportation projects, right? Are they putting a lot of money into highways still? Are they shifting that money toward transit, um, toward trains toward other forms of mobility are they are they um, financing the build out of cycling infrastructure things like that right that they have a lot of power over that purse and there's a lot of kind of taxation at the federal level so there's a lot of money that can be distributed to shape the way that cities priorities work or the the types of things that they want to in, invest in right um, or or plan for but then as you say 
city governments, you know, especially in the United States, do have a lot of power to shape the transportation systems within their boundaries, depending how, um, you know, the the rules and the, the governing structures are set up. Um, and certainly, I think that we've seen um, cities have done some really great things. If we look at Seattle and, you know, the shift toward transit that has happened there, the investment that's been made in it, you know, even though, you know, I, I often bring up, even though Los Angeles is, you know, the city of the car, there's no question that the local government there has made a lot of investment into um, transit and and building out their transit system in the past decade or so. Um, and that has been a really positive shift, right? That that has made it possible for people to get away, get around in a way that they don't always need to rely on the car um, or you can get to key areas in the city without needing a car, right? And so more of that can be done. And of course, more of that should be done in order to change the way that transportation works in cities, but also, as you were saying, you know, when you were talking about um, Portland, to, to also shift the way that people think about transportation and what they think is is possible, right? If they start to see it in, in their cities, maybe they start to think about transportation in a different way. And, you know, the kind of interests or, or the public opinion on transportation starts to shift, and that can affect voting patterns and, and political campaigns and, you know, what what politicians feel that they can support and, and get behind. Um, and that is really important as well. But then I would also note one of the reasons that I would argue at least that we have a system that is so dependent on the automobile is ultimately the power and, and the sway of the auto industry and the various interests that are associated with the auto industry, right? The various suppliers to the auto industry, certain labor unions who um, you know, have a lot of workers that are in the auto industry, you know, and, and many more beyond that, right? And that, in a way, also constrains our ability to move away from the automobile um, because there's not a similar kind of interest group or, or power to push for investments in in other forms of mobility, right? Um, there's, there's not the same degree of energy, the same degree of capital that can be put into lobbying and, and things like that. And one of the things that we see in, in Canada and the United States right now is part of the reason that there's so much emphasis on the electric uh, vehicle as the solution to the transportation system's contribution to climate change is because the auto industries are so large in those two countries, because they are so influential. Um, and so then they help to shape the priorities that governments have. And of course, you know, the mining industry, which I'm sure is is quite influential in the United States, but 75% of global mining companies are actually headquartered in Canada. So they, they are very powerful up here. Um, and so they also have a lot of influence in shaping the direction of, of government policy, what they think is attractive, um, because certainly there is a lot of potential jobs in expanding mining, adding new mines, you know, building cars and batteries and all these sorts of things. Then if you say, you know, we're going to build some transit systems and encourage people to take bikes, there are fewer jobs, less economic activity associated with those forms of mobility. So those are challenges that we face in making that argument as well because of how the economy is set up and because we, we kind of, um, because of how we judge economic value. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and, and one of the things that's kind of interesting um, about this too is, I mean, if you think about like gas cars, it's sort of fundamentally, uh, I mean, I think of it as it's it's like the, it still depends on infrastructure, right? As we were discussing before, the, it needed that government support to build the roads and, and, you know, things like insurance. There's all kinds of collective things we do to support, to support cars, but gas cars in particular 
right? I mean, there's a reason the military uses, you know, fossil fuels, right? It's if you need to go somewhere where there's no infrastructure of any kind, you don't have time to put up power lines up, right? You, you, it's gas is, it's energy dense. It's, it's transportable. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of in a way it's like the most libertarian like way to get around is like a gas car, but gas powered individual, you know, vehicle again, still relies on, on, um, uh, you know, collective infrastructure, but you know, but, one of the but things all that collective infrastructure is hidden, right? That That's part of the reason why the automobile can seem like such a libertarian fantasy and provide all this quote unquote freedom as, as the advocates say is because, you know, you completely ignore those collective structures that make it possible for you to do that in the first place, which I just find absolutely fascinating. Yeah, we take it for granted. No, you're, you're you're absolutely right. But at the same time, um, you know, uh, electric drivetrain technology and and I think autonomous drivetrain technology to some extent, like the technologies themselves are 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 different in in some kind of basic ways. And I think, you know, one of the things with electric cars is, you know, right now we're we're really failing at EV adoption in this country because we're saying like every car has to have 300 miles of range so that it can start to to you know, a battery electric car can start to like be more similar. Right. And so it's like, we're, we're trying so hard to make it like what we know that, that, that kind of technology that, that we're kind of breaking it in the process because now, you know, with our limited battery supplies, we can only have half as many cars because they have to have 300 miles of range instead of 150. Right. And, and they're unaffordable to a, a lot of people. And, and similarly, and, and so in some ways, you know, electrification kind of, it asks us to think a little bit more rationally about like, where are we actually traveling? Oh, most of our travels actually around town. Maybe I don't need an SUV. Maybe I don't need hundreds and hundreds of miles of range. Maybe I can do this in a much simpler, lighter weight sense. Similarly with AVs, you know, you have, you know, I think the, the Elon Musk, Tesla has been very successful because they're selling like what people imagine, which is like a car, just like the one we have today, but it just happens to drive ourselves, but it, it drives itself. But in reality, like where autonomous vehicle technology is, is much more like, you know, sort of, Robots and where to me I see potential opportunities is is like transit and things and and the sort of making robotic mobility infrastructure for a city where where it's kind of like part of the city's infrastructure but it's just sort of more automated but but these things are just so fundamentally different right and and so it's like in both of these cases with the EVs and the AVs we're trying to make these technologies be like like what we're used to but in reality they want to be I feel like more at least more community focus there it's it's more about the city it's more of, and it's less about just like getting the biggest truck or suv you can so you can just go anywhere wherever do you do you think that there's in some ways some some technological sort of headwinds towards sort of thinking about mobility um differently or are we going to keep just trying to to fit these sort of round pegs into the into the old square holes yeah it's it's an interesting question, right? And I've certainly appreciated your kind of contributions on, uh, you know, the EV discussions and and things like that as well. You know, to to kind of push people to think about it in a different way, especially as there's this big push, you know, to to have your Hummer EVs and and you know, big big SUV, big electric SUVs and things like this. Um, you know, I, I think it's difficult, right? Because I think that this idea, as we've been talking about, of transportation is so dominant. Um, and there's a real desire just to replicate that with whatever comes along next, even if it doesn't fit as well into that kind of system. Um, and as you say, that's a real problem with electric vehicles right now um, because you know we have had this move toward 
increasingly large SUVs and trucks over the past several decades as this trend has has kind of blown up. Um, and certainly it's been very profitable for the auto companies because they make more money selling these vehicles than if they sold regular sedans. Um, and then you know, at the same time, there have been a load of consequences from the environmental consequences to, you know, the kind of human consequences um, as these vehicles make it um, increase the risk that a pedestrian dies when they're when they're struck and, and all these sorts of things. Right. Um, and also, when we think about what is necessary for that shift to electric vehicles and all the mining that's involved with that in order to produce the batteries. And so then if we have the requirement that all of these cars need a 300 mile range or, you know, some even say that they're going to get even more than that, um, then that requires a lot more mining per vehicle, which makes this even less sustainable of you know a, a kind of transportation revolution whereas if we were even looking at cars that were smaller like you know in in europe or southern europe or parts of asia um that would look really different but it's such a break from what we consider automobility to be at the moment right um and so it, it's really interesting to think about the direction that that can go. And even if you even if you think back to like the visions that were put out about what the kind of autonomous driving future was going to look like by Google and these companies back in the day, right? Like if you think about the Google's uh, little Firefly um, prototype vehicle, it was like basically a little smart car. Um, without a steering wheel or pedals or anything like that. And the idea was just going to bring you around, right? It was, a, it was quite a different vision of what transportation would look like, how, how it would work, or how these vehicles would be structured. Um, but I, I think ultimately, like part of the problem there is that we have this idea of what transportation should be and how it should look. And we have a really difficult... Um, we have a really difficult time moving that or, or transitioning to a different idea of what it would look like. And so I think it's hard for people to see the electric vehicle as some kind of small car and be ready to embrace that after building up this kind of notion of ourselves as these drivers of these massive vehicles over the past number of years. And I think that the fact that those vehicles exist makes it more difficult because then people feel less safe driving a smaller vehicle, right? And I think that the problem with um, the, the kind of autonomous aspect of this is that really the technology itself hasn't moved as quickly or hasn't gotten as far as we were told that we should expect it to be by now. Um, and it operating as kind of a, a mass form of mobility as we were told to expect, you know, a number of years ago by these tech companies is not really going to work. Will it have implementations? Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. Um, you know, you talk about transit, certainly um, autonomous driving technology has been used on metro systems and, and subway systems for, for ages, right? This is not a, a new thing. Um, and, you know, it's possible that it could be used even more in those sectors, you know, where, where it makes sense. Um, but the idea that we're going to like replace all of our cars with AVs in any kind of near term future, I think is, is complete fantasy. Right. And so for me, like when I think about, uh, about those promises, like it, it's, it's difficult because it feels like, it, it feels like it's distracting us from solutions that we already have, that we know exist, that we have the technology to implement today. But, um, because it doesn't fit into this like pre-existing notion of transportation, but also because it doesn't look like fancy and new and shiny because it's using these new technologies that were being sold, we're we're not 
approaching those, right? We're not taking advantage of the the fact that we can use more bikes or even e-bikes to help people get around more easily, that we can make investments in transit infrastructure so that we can we can solve many of these issues if we were really dedicated toward it, that we can't do that because when those when the moments come that we can seize on those things, there's always kind of a new technological toy to like, you know, kind of dangle in front of us and say, ah, but the kind of utopian AV future is just around the road or, oh, uh, you know, we're all just going to drive electric vehicles and that's going to solve the the climate change problem. So we don't need to make these really fundamental solutions that would solve the root of the problem, which again, I argue is the automobile and the the degree to which we're dependent on it and we use it. Yeah. No, I, I think your, your, um, your point about the existing solutions is a good one because, uh, you know, you see this a lot and actually I get really frustrated with, I was just discussing this with someone in the, in the AV sector, uh, the other weekend, um, at a conference where, you know, they were making this argument, which you hear way more than I'd like to hear as it is, um, which is sort of like, oh, well, you know, if some people die during the development of, of autonomous vehicles that like, that's, you know, going to, the, the technology is going to save so many lives that, that like that will somehow be worth it. Um, which of course is, is, you know, <laughs> You need proof that you're going to actually get there, right? Which is which is it's hard to to prove that something will definitely be some way in the future. But beyond that, like like to me, what I, and what I told them is, I was like, you know, look, that this argument makes sense to you because you live in the AV world. If you step outside of the AV world and you talk to people who actually just care about about improving road safety, they'll tell you seatbelt seatbelt interlocks could could save you know, I mean, whatever, like maybe like a third of the deaths on the road, right? I mean, we're talking about like thousands and thousands of lives. DUI interlocks, which I know there's some movement towards. Um, so so so. So I definitely completely agree that 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 there's so much we could do without more technology, but it the technology is going to continue to develop. I think. I mean, I think to, to some extent that's that's also a, a, a kind of a given. And so I guess this, this brings me to my last sort of big question um, that I wanted to 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 get your your thoughts on, which is sort of how do how do we think about aligning the development uh, research and development of new technologies with the kinds of goals and the use cases you're talking about? Because I think. It, it sounds, you know, reading the book, it's your your critique is a yes. We don't necessarily need technology to to do much better, but also partly it's not that the technology itself is is intrinsically bad per se. It's that it's aligned with you know very specific incentives that aren't necessarily the ones that are that are going to be good. Um, and and specifically, you think of venture capitalists, right? They they every company they invest in needs to be the one that that pays off their entire fund because only one of them is going to be right, and and that really aligns. Around very very strong sort of business models, but but none of the that that business model is never going to be how do we help this city develop you know public mobility infrastructure that's gonna that's gonna serve everyone because that's not going to be some giant you know total addressable market that that the VCs get all excited about. So 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 my question is, assuming that technology continues to develop, assuming maybe that that some things are going to come out of that that could be really valuable, how do we sort of align that that R and D effort with sort of your the vision that you're talking about so that technology is used you know in, in in more positive ways. Yeah, it's a really important question, right? And and you know, I always do think it's important to say so that people realize like I I think maybe it's obvious to some people, but maybe it's not um that we do like already have the technology we need to solve many of these problems that we face, right? What we we're not lacking technology we're not lacking like sufficiently advanced or innovative technology we have it all right now and we can use it to solve these problems um, whether it's problems in transportation whether it's climate change we we absolutely have the technology we need to solve that we're just 
told we don't so that, um, you know, ideas for like carbon capture and all these sorts of things are, are held out as solutions. So we don't change now and we just um, rely on a technology to save us in the future and hopefully it arrives. Um, but, you know, I would also agree with you that I think that we can use new technologies to improve the transportation system. That's completely possible. It doesn't mean that things need to be static and, and just stay the same, right? Um, but how do we have those technologies align with the actual needs of the transportation system, with the needs of the public, and actually improving equity, improving access to transportation, um, really forefronting these really public goals and these broad-based solutions that we actually need. And, you know, again, my response would be that I think that the state needs to step back in and it needs to have a larger role in shaping the development of these technologies um, and the way that they're implemented in transportation systems. I think one of the problems that we've had over the past decade or so is that the state, whether it's at the local level, at the national level, what have you, and regulators have really had a hands-off approach and kind of said, okay, this, this tech company wants to do something in the cities. Okay, well, largely they can go ahead and do it and we'll kind of stand back and wait to see what the outcome is. And then we might step in to do something when you know the backlash grows to a level that gets sufficient, that forces us to, to act and actually do something, right? And I think that instead, it would be much more beneficial to the public and would also help you know ensure that the technologies that hit the streets are actually beneficial to the public that you know the state is more proactive that regulators are more proactive in assessing these technologies before they hit the streets to ensure that they actually have the benefits that they're promising um, whether it's autonomous technologies or something like uber uber or what have you you know there are so many the micro mobility systems uh, or services as well um, so that they can look at what's being promised so that they can look at the actual technology that is being proposed that is being being rolled out to make sure that it's actually going to deliver on those promises or has a sufficient kind of chance to do so but also to say okay what should this transportation look what should this transportation system look like how are we going to solve the problems in the transportation system what technologies would actually be necessary or would help achieve that and how can we incentivize the creation of those technologies the promotion of those technologies the implementation of those technologies um whether that is maybe there's there is a role for the private sector to play there or maybe um there's an important role for you know public kind of technology technological development agencies or, or what have you to be working on those solutions, to be developing those technologies as well so that they can be rolled out in, in different ways and in different places. Well, Paris, uh, we could just keep going on and on here. Uh, 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 but we we do unfortunately have to uh, have to wrap up here. Um, first of all, I just want to say, you know, if you're listening to this show, uh, regardless of what your ideological tendencies are, I would say, you know, this is a book that is very uh, uh, deeply researched. Uh, very seriously approached and that I think, you know, uh, it's, it's really, I think it's especially valuable if you don't see yourself as, as coming at these questions from, from the left wing. Um, you know, th this is a really good way to kind of understand how folks from that perspective are, are approaching it. I think there's some really, really good, um, insights here. And I think anybody who is interested in, in these topics, um, would really, would really benefit from this. And I think beyond anything else, you know, when I was at, at PAVE, you know, uh, it was uh, uh, Partners for Automated Vehicle Education. I was really, my, my strong view about what the mission should be there is that, you know, the reason we need to be educating people about this technology is so that they can help decide what the future is. And I think that, you know, this is, I, I really commend you, Paris, for for 
for taking you know the future of mobility so seriously that 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 you put all this effort into into writing this book and having your say. Um, obviously, we we all have our own views, and I think that you know. Uh, this book is just a great way to start the kind of conversation um, that we need to have about about what we really want out of the future of mobility. So, so thank you so much uh, for for putting all the work in. I know how hard it is to write a book. If people want to know, uh, first of all, if people want to find the book, if people want to follow your work, where can they do that? What's what are the best places for that? Yeah. For, firstly, thank you so much for the kind words about the book. And you know, I know you've been through the process as well. Um, certainly more involved than I expected. You know, publishing a book. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm ha- I'm happy to have done it. Right. So yeah, if if people want to know more about the book or or what I'm up to, I'm at Paris Marks on Twitter. I, I tweet a bit too much. That's uh, certainly the case. You know, if they want to listen to the podcast, I'm sure they can find it anywhere that they find yours. It's Tech Won't Save Us. Uh, on all the major podcast platforms. And of course, the book, uh, Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. Um, you know, you can buy it direct from Verso Books, which is the publisher, or, you know, all the major book uh, retailers have it. Uh, you know, even even the big uh, one headed by uh, Jeff Bezos. So, <laughs> Right on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, fantastic book and again thank you so much just for for all the conversations that you have on on all these these fascinating topics and um thanks especially for taking the time to be here today absolutely thanks so much for the invite on that note uh, i just want to say thank you paris for joining us today thanks ed not thank you to alex who's not here and thank you to our audience for uh listening to another episode of the atomic cast